Hello, I'm Rodney Barnes, an executive producer and writer of HBO's Winning Time, the rise of the Lakers dynasty, and host of this podcast. I want to build something special. The Los Angeles Lakers select... The entire league is on the verge of bankruptcy. Irvin. With me, it's going to be exciting. Magic. Our girls, they won't cheer. They'll dance. Johnson. It's showtime! Much of the writing for this show was written by myself and my literary partner in crime, showrunner, co-creator, executive producer, Max Bornstein, who you'll get to know in a future episode. The thing that brings me to this show is we get an opportunity to talk about sports, politics, class, race, in a very specific era. So what are we going to be talking about in this podcast? We're going to unpack some of the best moments from the latest episode and dive into some behind-the-scenes stories. I'll also be joined by some key collaborators on the show, and we'll bring in some surprise guests and experts along the way. But first, a little recap and a quick word. If you haven't watched the first episode, hit pause and come back later. Okay, here we are. It's 1979 Los Angeles. Jerry Buss, played by the great John C. Riley, decides he's going to buy the L.A. Lakers and redefine the losing NBA franchise. I'm going to buy the Lakers. Ah, no kidding. Tell them to win the championship one of these days. I'll do what I can, Fred. His first move, drafting Urban Magic Johnson, one of college ball's up-and-coming stars and the guy that beat the hell out of Larry Bird, which I was happy about as a child. Versus Irving Johnson Jr., the show-stopping, naturally gifted physical specimen. Dr. Buss, you'll find is a wheeler and a dealer. He's fast on his feet. And he doesn't have the money <laughs> to do this thing that he really wants to do. Along the way, we meet Lakers players Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He's got a side gig as a movie actor. Norm Nixon, who loves fur coats and uh, get his pedicures. We also meet volatile coach Jerry West and the bigoted Laker owner Jack King Cook, who reluctantly sells the team to Dr. Jerry Buss. So, we got a deal? One concern, liquidity. You're asking to put up half the total price in land swaps, but you'll still owe the rest in cash. Jerry ultimately woos magic to sign, and in doing so, he enters the world of sex, money, stardom, and basketball in late 70s Los Angeles. The Los Angeles Lakers select Irvin Magic Johnson. Today's guest is the legendary icon, Mr. Adam McKay, who directed our pilot episode and is also an executive producer on the show. He's been a big champion of the show from day one, and it's been an honor to work with him. So, hey, Adam, welcome to the show. Mr. Barnes, thank you so much, my friend, for having me. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure to chat it up with you. Likewise. It's an honor. It's an honor. So um, let's get into talking about the pilot or just the process of putting this whole thing together. Where did it start for you? Yeah. So, you know, I, I grew up a hoophead. I've been following the NBA since the late 70s. And I was told, you got to read this Jeff Perlman book, Showtime. And I thought, you know, I, I grew up in that era. What are they going to tell me? I don't know. I, I love all the old stories. I've heard all the interviews. And lo and behold, Mr. Perlman uh, did a great, great job because 
There was a whole epic tale here, which I did not know existed. We've seen it happen with boxing a lot in film. Mm -hmm. And we've seen it happen to some degree with baseball as well. But if you really think about it, the history of basketball and the NBA and the great players, it's its never really gotten that treatment. Mm. And so I thought, man, this could be a really cool series uh, to show these like people that we know, but to do it in a dramatic fashion. And from that point on, I was in and I was told, well, you got to work with these writers, Max Borenstein and Rodney Barnes. They're awesome. However, they're busy. So I then had to sit on my hands for like two years <laughs> while you guys finished up your respective work. Uh, and then that pilot script came in and I was like, holy crap. Well, first, thank you very much on behalf of myself and Max. Um, I wanted to ask you about your memories of the 70s and 80s, because I think that plays into a lot of, I can say for my contribution to the script and the entire series has been just remembering a lot of what that time felt like. What did it feel like to you? I've always viewed it as a hinge moment in American history and culture. Uh, because what happens is you have this country that goes from being fairly strictly divided uh, along racial and class lines where you have sort of black music and black art and black films. And then all of a sudden going into the 80s and, and basketball was a big part of this as well, obviously, as music and emerging hip hop and fashion where you start to see this shift where black culture becomes American culture. But it, oddly, at the same time, the country's getting more conservative as you have the Reagan revolution hitting. Class inequality is exploding. And oddly, at the same time, white kids like myself are, you know, living outside Philly, are listening to hip hop and starting to dress like the basketball players in the NBA. It's funny when you mention, you know, how African-American culture sort of uh, blended into the game coming out of the early 70s. And I look at how the NBA sort of shifted into taking on more of a street ball idea. You saw guys with the big afros and the dunk became an expression of defiance almost. And that's sort of where our show picks up from. You know, why I think the NBA sort of takes a dip from the conservative way that the game was portrayed and played into where we enter. And it's funny how our Showtime Lakers sort of become more of a um, an organized way of being the best of both worlds. They have a controlled chaos that they play with and which sort of plays into today's NBA. Yeah, it's interesting because I remember being a... a, a, a you know, very below average basketball player having those coaches when I was a kid that would, you know, sort of give you the Hoosiers fundamentals, three passes before you shoot. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, we're going to practice the chess pass. And I'll never forget when Bobby Knight coached the Olympics and Bobby Knight's the epitome of that old white yeah. angry coach. <laughs> The old rule used to be never jump up in the air unless you know where you're going with the ball. But then he was coaching Michael Jordan and he said, 
Michael Jordan's allowed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's the exception to the rule. Yeah. So those walls started really crumbling. And what was cool about it, they weren't crumbling because of some desire to get ratings or be cool. They were crumbling because of what streetball players knew in the 70s yes. and the 60s because it works, because yeah. it's a better brand of basketball, because it's kind of unstoppable when you get that fast break, freewheeling, creative style going. It's much harder to game plan against. So these teams started winning and they were winning with style and flair. And right in the middle of that were the Showtime Lakers. And I'll just never forget the first time I saw Magic Johnson do one of those cup where he would cradle the ball, kick his right leg way out, give you the, like almost make his eyes larger for the no look pass to draw the defender in and then flip it over the opposite shoulder to Michael Cooper who would soar in for a dunk. And the first time my friends and I saw that, we recorded it on like a crappy VHS and we just wore it out playing it over and over again and trying to emulate it in our pickup games. So let's talk about the pilot. Um, there's this thing that you do that is brilliant. And I think it bleeds throughout the entire season, but certainly in the pilot of where you could have a scene that's dramatic and then we go to a scene that's comedic and they could be right next to one another. And it's like we make this tonal shift. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that um, how much of that did you think about and how you directed the show? We're clearly building off of your vision and how you do what you do. Let's get into a little bit of that. Yeah, so, you know, that that kind of approach, I just think audiences nowadays are so much more sophisticated and can handle so much more than the old genre constructs that we had for decades. Mm -hmm. um, a movie I always cite as a big inspiration is the movie Get Out, um, yes. which was really eye-opening for me because that movie's funny, that movie's scary, that movie's a thriller, and that movie's a satire. I just think we don't live according to the old-fashioned genres anymore. And we're really in this great and at the same time terrifying time where you can push this stuff. So this was a show, thanks to you and Max and Jim Hecht and HBO, um, and then our brave, amazing, talented DP, Todd Van Hazel, mm -hmm. where everyone just from the jump was like, let's go. Because ultimately it's fun. I mean, ultimately, yeah. it, it really is a visual treat and, and it keeps you off balance. I think that's one of the big things about it. It keeps you off balance as an audience member. And I think it's important with any storytelling that you not get into that comfortable groove where you know what's going to happen next. Uh, Dr. Buss, uh, played by the great John C. Riley. That whole opening sequence at the Playboy Mansion Basketball. I mean, look at it. It's like great sex. It's always moving. It's rhythmic. It's up close and personal. There's no pads or helmets for protection. It's just you and these other guys out there trying to get the ball into the hoop. How do you think that frames the entire uh, 
meeting of Dr. Buss for the first time. To me, it captures a time. It captures a bunch of things at one time. But let's talk about what you were thinking about. I think that's, yeah, that's a perfect scene to put your finger on because you're you're learning about three or four things there. You're learning that this is an older guy with a comb over who sleeps with incredibly young women. Uh, <laughs> and it's it's totally unseemly, a little bit gross. You're also seeing he's got a vision and he's not faking the vision. He really does have a sparkle in his eyes. Then my favorite part is he walks out and he starts telling us how the NBA is actually kind of lame. So it's not like the vision is taking us into this league that we all know and love now. It's not so cool. And he turns to the, you know, the morning after a giant orgy. And he tells you that all these uh, (laughs) good-looking, half-naked people don't care about the NBA. Uh, And then he's going to go by the Lakers. And we're a little creeped out by him, but we're kind of enthralled. It's John C. Riley, who's very charming. And he's breaking the fourth wall on top of all of it. Welcome to sunny Los Angeles. Great for tans, shit for fans. Mentioning the 70s and early 80s, recreating that look for the show. You mentioned Todd Van Hazel uh, a moment ago. Going into recreating that look, how did you guys get together and design? I know the Ikigami, I know there are a bunch of things, but love to hear you talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so Todd, as you know, Rodney, is definitely one of the MVPs of the show. He's That he is. He is not only incredibly gifted director of photography, he's also got an amazing spirit of collaboration, kind of this indefatigable positivity in in the greatest of ways. It's very Mm -hmm. sincere. He's funny. Uh, Nothing knocks the guy down. So I told him this idea. I was like, I'm really thinking that we blend formats that, you know, and he just right away lit up and like all great collaborators made it his own, and he found this amazing camera, which you just mentioned (laughs) from the late 70s, the actual video camera that they were using in the news and sometimes in sports called an Ikigami. And the second we camera tested it, it was like a time machine. Anything you filmed with this Ikigami, you just immediately felt like you were in 1979. So we fell in love with that camera. But then his real breakthrough was... I wanted to shoot on 35 as well, and I wanted to leave it grainy, maybe not clean the negative as much. And he came up with this uh, process, this ectochromic process, where it would oversaturate the the look of the film. Uh, And we played around with that through some camera tests, processed it, screened it, had conversations. And it's just, you want to eat the film. It looks so great. Uh, So that was a major breakthrough from Todd Van Hazel. And then the trick to making this multi-format style work are, are, you know, it's great editors. And we were very fortunate to have the legend, Hank Corwin, editing our pilot, as well as an incredible team of editors for each of the episodes that all were somewhat schooled in Hank's style, and uh, all these editors are just killers. I mean, they really picked it up. So, shifting gears a little bit, 
one of the things that I'm most proudest of with our show is how we deal with race and racism. And sort of piggybacking on when we were talking about the opening scene at the Playboy Mansion and how it accomplishes so many things, I think that sand dab scene oh. does a similar thing. Love it. What's the matter, son? You haven't touched your food. Um, I was wondering, like, what is it? <laughs> sand dabs. Okay. They're, they're sand dabs. It's expensive is what it is. It's a very fine fish, a delicacy. Take my word for it. Right. Could I just get a cheeseburger? <laughs> Come on, Jack. The kid's 19. Get him a burger. You want one too, Mr. Johnson? I'm all right. <laughs> Tony, can you please get me a burger, get this man a burger, and get this young man right here a burger with cheese and all that? Yeah. Every- all right, everything that works, whatever you got. You want one, Jack? No, I'm enjoying my sand dab. Okay, good, good. You've got Irvin Sr., who works on the Chrysler line. You've got his son, who's from a, a more contemporary generation where they don't look at things the same way. You've got Jack Kent Cook, who is, uh, I want to call him a racist, but he certainly has very clearly defined ideas about race uh, and how it affects business and how, you know, all of that comes together. And then you've got Dr. Buss, who's probably closer to magic in his politics in a way that he thinks. And so just wanted to get some thoughts from you about that scene and, and what you got from it. One of the things I really love about this show is it's just a great team of people. And I think what ended up, and we'll let the audience ultimately decide on this, are some really nuanced scenes that deal with race in a way that isn't immediately blowing the whistle and saying, this is a racist moment, but more portraying it the way racism existed in that day, which was, and, and, and you, this is something I learned from you. And I learned from a lot of our other contributors on this show that racism is a day to day endeavor that little small slights pop up and you got to keep going through your day as a person of color. And that sand dab scene is so well written. You guys just did a beautiful job on that because there's these little racist slights that just pop up throughout the scene. And I really had never looked at depicting racism like that, uh, a series of small slights. And then one of my other favorite moments is when Irvin Sr. tells his son, Do you know how many times I went left where I wanted to go Mm -hmm. right? You know how many times I went left when I should have gone right? Hmm? Smiled when there was nothing funny. Took less than I deserved. But bowed my head and said, thank you, sir. So you could keep your mind on playing ball? Pop. And for all that, I get you telling me You know something about this life I don't? And that generational divide from two people of color that are two Mm -hmm. African-Americans who are dealing with racism, but in a very different generational way. I mean, that speech from the great, great Rob Morgan to his son is another one of my favorite moments in the show. And I think the beauty of it for me is that Like you said, it's not a heightened racist moment. You know, it's not um, a lot of what we see today. 
But you see characters carrying it. You see how Magic is saying, this is how I deal with it in my world. And Irvin Sr. is talking about how he deals with it in his world. And they're so far apart in how they see the world that it's also speaking to a father and a son that are actually moving apart as well. Look where we at, Pop. We in this fancy-ass hotel. They fly us out first class. They do all that shit to get you primed up. So you jump at the first offer they put in front of your face. Irvin, pull your head out your ass. All I know is you got 400000 in the one hand, nothing in the other. Pretty simple choice to me. That's you, Pop. I love, I mean, the relationship between the two of them. It, it's There's no dialogue with it, but one of my favorite shots is just Irvin Sr. driving his, because, uh, you know, he doesn't just work the Chrysler line. Right. He also, he's got to earn for his family. Yep. So he also works a sanitation truck on the weekends, mm-hmm. picking up garbage. And he's got his son asleep next to him as he's driving in his garbage truck. I just love that shot. And uh, the whole family, the, the Johnson family, the depiction of them, the nuance of the dynamics, the church mother. Yeah, being able to speak the culture and not just race to me is another strong point of what this show accomplishes. I think that's a great way of putting it. And and not just culture, also economics. I mean, yes, what- class, all of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, what money does to our concept, what money and fame does to our conception of race is endlessly fascinating exactly. to me. I mean, you know all the stories you know, mm-hmm. first African-American player in the SEC, first African-American right. player for Syracuse, Michael Jordan in North Carolina, and Tiger Woods. Well, no, I know he's I know he's a person of color, but still, he's a great golfer. Like, right. that weird kind of thing <laughs> yes. that happens, that magic really historically is one of the, the main figures of that transformation. And... Now we're moving into the next part of this. Magic and Larry Bird. I don't know how much you remember. I remember (laughs) it clearly when they played in college. And it was almost like Jerry Cooney when he fought Larry Holmes. It felt like this great white hope that was going to defeat the guy that the smiling black guy. And there was this weird racial tension that. I understand, but don't understand because you had great white players. You had great black players at the time, but it was something that was highly charged about this game and those two guys that, that led into the NBA and to Boston and LA and the, the differences between West coast, East coast and all of that stuff. I mean, you, you brought up the Cooney Holmes fight Mm -hmm. and for people that don't know about that, that was giant. And I think it was around the same year. That might have been around. It was. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what that basically was, was Larry Holmes was the heir apparent. He was the heir. He had already become the champion of Muhammad Ali, had just a pole axe of a jab, one of the great jabs in the history of boxing. The Easton Assassin, was that his nickname? (laughs) Yeah, that was, yeah. yeah. A bad, bad man. One of the great heavyweights. Gets a little swept under the the rug because really, truly a great- He came after Ali. That was- Oh, he was nasty. So there's this guy, Cooney, with like kind of the broken nose, tough, white, working class (laughs) thing. Like I said, I grew up in a poor neighborhood. 
But I'm, you know, I come from a white family. So the white poor people around me were just unabashedly like, Cooney's got to kick Holmes's ass. Yes. And it never <laughs> even occurred to me, like, wait a minute, we live in Pennsylvania. Shouldn't we be rooting for Holmes? He's yeah. actually from our states. But it was like, nope, we want Cooney to win. And it's just nuts. So you're 100% right. The magic bird thing. And I was, I was just getting into hoops at that time. So I was vaguely aware of it. So uh, switching gears once again, um, we talked about the Playboy Mansion scene, but that's not where we start the series. We started on a very serious tone. That's with Magic's HIV diagnosis. Starting a series with something that heavy, um, what do you think about it? I mean, it, it goes back to my initial read of the pilot script you guys wrote. Right away, I was in it. Right away, I knew this wasn't going to just be, you know, fun time, alley-oops, Laker show. And then the next scene after it being the Playboy Mansion, right. uh, I was immediately engaged. But I, it, it's, I, I, it's actually a little bit of classical storytelling in the sense that, you know, if you started a story with the king you know, falling dead off of his yeah. throne, which was what that moment was like. I mean, people, thank God, medical breakthroughs have happened. But back then, when you were diagnosed with HIV, it was a death sentence. Death I mean, sentence, that was it. Yeah. And this was, he was like, to me, he was like the leader of the NBA. He was the mm -hmm. guy everyone kind of looked to. It was one of the great gut punches I've ever experienced as a sports fan, but the magic HIV, I thought it, I thought it was a perfect way to start the series. I, I think, you know, when you think about the significance of magic and where we're entering the show with all of this optimism and certainly with certain behavior that we highlight um, throughout the show, that it's almost a cautionary tale to a degree. And I think we wanted to start at a place where it's like the end of the book, but then we're going to delve in and you get an opportunity to see why Lon's crying next to him, uh, what the significance of this moment is, and you get to see the journey along the way to understand why this is all going down the way it's going down. Uh, last question. What do you want viewers to walk away thinking, uh, not just about this episode, but our entire series? What what I I'm just going to speak to what drew me to it. I I think there's something going on right now in sports which is really healthy and interesting, and it just happened with the Ben Simmons trade. It's happened with Kevin Love and Demar Derozan. There's these discussions about mental health, and yep. there's these discussions about how free we should be to talk at people. There's these discussions about how we treat people that in the past seemed like they were a million miles away and they were celebrities. And what I love about this show 
is it goes so deep into their characters. They become such real people. I, I just think the writing you guys did, the detail on these characters, the depth, as well as all the dynamics of that time, which are, are so different than how we live now, but yet at the same time, in a lot of ways, the same. I, I, I just hope a lot of that plays. And then on another level, it's fun as hell. I mean, yes, and, and Lord knows we need some of that in uh, 2022. Love talking to you, Mr. McKay. Be well, Mr. Barnes. You too. Take it easy. Before we wrap up, I want to end the show with our buzzer beater moment, the little moment from the episode that might have passed you by, a detail that you might have caught but left you wanting more. And this week's moment, Claire Rothman, played by Gabby Hoffman, was a real person in the Lakers organization. Hello, gentlemen. Oh, geez, I take a G&T, hon. Get it yourself, Frank. Claire Rothman? Pleasure. Frank, you are looking at the gal who was the first one to put a rock and roll act in a sports arena. Wow, <laughs> yeah. I'm a fan. She was a general manager of the Forum, but she was also a visionary. The first musician to perform at the Forum was Aretha Franklin. It was 1968, backed by a full-string orchestra. Tickets were between 350 and 650. Even I can afford that. Okay, the buzzer beater is up, which means we've got a wrap. Thanks for listening to the first episode of the official Winning Time podcast. And a special thank you goes out to our guest, Adam McKay. You can watch Winning Time on HBO Max, Sunday nights, and the next podcast comes out after the TV show. See you then. This is the official Winning Time companion podcast. And it's a production of HBO, Pineapple Street Studios, and Hyper Object Industries. Our executive producers are Harry Nelson, Claire Slaughter, Gabrielle Lewis, Barry Finkel, Max Linsky, and Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our lead producer on the show is Jess Hackle. Aaron Kelly is our managing producer. Shaka Mali, Jonathan Shiflett, and Elliot Adler are our producers. Darby Maloney is our editor, and our engineer is Davey Sumner. Production music is courtesy of HBO, and you can watch episodes of Winning Time on HBO Max. <laughs> <laughs>